The title of today's message is A Day That Will Live in Infamy, and it's found in the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Father, we thank you for another day of life, another day to move, to breathe, to obey you, to live for you, to trust you. Help us, Father, to take this admonition from Holy Writ this morning to apply it to our lives that we might live in light of Christ's death, burial, and and his resurrection in our stead. Help us, Lord, to apply that accurately to our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1845, a small boy with a large voice started out his career, which would lead him to become the master of the American stage. His name was Edwin Thomas, and he was from a well-known family of actors. At the age of 15, he made his debut as Richard III when his father became too ill to perform it. Edwin was soon performing in stage plays such as Hamlet in London and New York and around the world. Soon he was known as the master of Shakespearean tragedy. Unfortunately, his real life would soon follow a similar path as his onstage persona. Tragedy would become the trademark of his life as well as of his work. You see, Edwin had two younger brothers who were also actors. They went by the names of John and Junus. In 1863, the three brothers played together in the play Julius Caesar. Edwin played the title role, and his brother John portrayed Brutus, the assassin of Caesar. This foreshadowed the events that would shock the nation and the world in 1865 when John became a real-life assassin. On that April night, John made his way into the presidential box at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and he fired a single bullet into the back of the head of the President of the United States. Edwin and John both shared the same last name, Booth, but followed different paths. That night would never be the same for either of them. The shame of his brother's crime drove Edwin into retirement. He likely would have never returned to the stage if it weren't for a twist of fate fate that took place on a train station's track in uh, 1865. Edwin had been awaiting his train when a well-dressed young man standing very near the tracks was pushed off the platform by a swell of the crowd. As he lost his footing, he fell and became caught between the platform and a moving train. With no regard for his own safety, Edwin locked his leg around a rail, reached over, grabbed the man by his jacket, and pulled him to the safety of the platform. After a sigh of relief, the rescued young man recognized the famous actor as Edwin Booth. But Edwin didn't recognize the equally famous young man whose life he had just saved. A few weeks later, Edwin received a letter in the mail from the secretary of General Ulysses S. Grant, which told him on that night he had saved the life of Robert Todd Lincoln, the eldest son of the president who was slain by his own brother, John. Edwin carried that letter in his vest pocket until the day he died. What a twist of fate. What irony. The older brother of the assassin who kills the beloved president saves the very life of that eldest son of the president. While Edwin and John shared the same father, mother, profession, and passion, they chose different paths. One took life, 
the other saved it. How can this possibly be? How do we explain such irony? Well, I can't answer that. I don't think anyone can. But I can offer some comments. The choice to take life or save life wasn't the first choice that these men had made in their lives. The choices that they had made ultimately led to the differences of living. They had developed patterns. They had developed differences through a series of choices that led to the climax of taking life or saving life. Everyone shares some of the same things in common. We all walk a path in life. We choose to allow the differences in our lives to help us, shape us, and to choose the differences between life and death. We find that exact same thing played out in the text that we look at in two lives, two criminals who hang on the cross. One chose life, and the other chose death. Last week, you'll recall, as we examined Luke 23, which is the run-up to Jesus' crucifixion, we saw our Lord had been beaten and abused. He was then forced to carry the instrument of his own death to the place of execution. He was scourged, and he lost a great amount of blood from all of this trauma that he had to undergo. It had a deleterious effect upon him. All of this brutality, the beatings, the carrying of the crossbeam, was too much for him. He could not bear it. As you know, Simon had been pressed into service to carry his crossbeam. But our Lord, even in the midst of that, concerned for others, shared with the daughters of Jerusalem that he did not want their pity. He did not want their prayers. He did want, not want them to weep for him, but to weep for themselves, and in, particularly, in particular for their children. Jesus shared his prediction that the city of Jerusalem would soon be in ruins. God would allow Israel to be punished for their sins against him. So as Jesus suffers one of the cruelest forms of death devised by man, he prays for his oppressors. It's amazing how our culture views the instrument of death that we have posted on our wall to the left of myself. Most people think of it as nothing more than costume jewelry. But to those in the first century, it carried ghastly connotations. If we really desire to understand how they viewed the cross and the execution that it represents, we need to place ourselves within a first century mindset. Crucifixion was a slow, torturous death. The victim was strapped to an upright stock, which meant his body posture could not change. He was stuck in that one position as those around him mocked him, threw items at him, and all the while he would be slipping in and out of consciousness. One of the overlooked elements of the crucifixion of Jesus is this. The Jews considered it a terrible fate, the worst of all fates. It was a curse to be hung on a tree. In the Old Testament, it states that to be crucified or to be hung on a tree is to be accursed by God. We see this curse as articulated in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22 where it says this, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death by hanging him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on that tree. But you shall surely bury him the same day, for he who is hung on a tree is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance. The verse's counterpart is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 13, where Paul writes, Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and then they quote the Deuteronomy text, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus not only suffered great physical pain, emotional trauma, mockery, and ridicule, but he suffered with the knowledge that he had become accursed of his own father. Now let's look together at the facts of the crucifixion and of this curse found in Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32. You can find this text if you need to use the Pew Bible on page 1055 of that Bible. There Luke gives us in quick succession the details of Jesus' crucifixion. We read in verse 32 that he was crucified with two others who were criminals. They were being led away to be put to death with him. This verse tells us that Jesus did not experience the crucifixion by himself, but two criminals were there with him. These men were guilty of crimes like theft and murder. But all three men were led together, one right after the other, holding their crossbeams, bearing them to the hill of their death, just on the outside of the gates of the city. I think of this as almost divine providence. Here Christ is with two criminals. Think about that for a minute. Jesus crucified between two criminals. Both had equal access to our Savior. Both could talk to him equally. Both men could read Pilate's inscription that would be hung above his head, that he was the king of the Jews. Both could hear Jesus' words, forgiving his persecutors. Both could hear the riles and the torments and the mockery of the religious leaders, but only one would ask Jesus to remember him. Interestingly, both men came from the same background, the same culture, and yet they would make quite different choices, one for life and one for death. I believe Jesus' crucifixion between two criminals fulfilled the prophecy found in Isaiah 53, where it says this, that he would be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities while being, here it is, numbered with the transgressors. Certainly this is fulfilled by his crucifixion between two lawbreakers, him sharing in the same kind of punishment and death. Now in verse 33, it reads, When they came to the place called the skull, there they were crucified with him, and with criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. You can see this picture that I took in Israel behind me of the place of the skull. The trees on top would have been where the uh, three crosses or many other crosses would have stood. As you can see, the pictures resemble a skull, two eyes, a nose, and somewhat of a mouth. They built a a parking lot beneath it, so it kind of obscures the mouth. But this area is just a stone's throw away from the garden tomb, which is near what this is called, Gordon's Calvary. Both the tomb and Gordon's Calvary are just outside the present-day Damascus city gates. This is a place where evangelical scholars, and you can see it on the map there, uh, suggest that Jesus died and was then buried into that garden tomb. Now the question is, where did the name, the place of the skull, come from? Well, it's explained in a number of different ways. Some have suggested that, as my picture does, that the place was known uh, for 
being the place of the skull, just by its look. Others have suggested that because of the many executions that took place there, that skulls would have been lying around, I guess. Well, I doubt that very much. For in the Jewish religion to have uh, dead bodies lying around is to be defiled. So um, I believe it's more along the lines, and you can take that map down now, uh, that it would have resembled a skull. Whatever, there is another place known uh, as a possibility of a site, and many scholars uh, actually prefer that. That is under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And um, the story behind that is that Constantine's mother came, evened out the hill that would have been Mount Calvary, and built a church on top of it. And you can go there and put your hand through a place that looks like a fireplace. There I am, a slimmer model of myself. And you can see it's very ornate. And uh, you can place your hand down in that little hole like a million other people have. Ugh and touch the place where supposedly Jesus was crucified, where the, his cross would have been. So there's two suggested places. Some prefer one over the other. Now both of these sites fit the prerequisite because they were outside the city walls, outside the gates of the city where this had to happen. Because the Jews wouldn't allow anyone crucified within the city, it would have defiled the city. We see that clearly in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. You probably know of this verse. It says that Jesus, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now the name, the place of the skull, comes from the Latin, Calvaria, which transliterated as Calvary in English, and it means skull. Since Luke wrote in Greek and not Aramaic, he used the word Golgotha, while others, writing in uh, Aramaic, used the word cranium, and uh, that's the word from which we get our English term cranium. Uh, so that's not a Milton Bradley board game. Uh, that's the thing that surrounds the brain, the cranium, and so that's the skull. So they use several different names for this, for the place of the skull. They use the calvaria, Golgotha, or cranium, which all mean the same thing, skull. As you know, the crucifixion, crucifixion was the preferred method of uh, capital punishment, during the Roman Empire, until it was completely banned by the Emperor Constantine, who became a Christian, supposedly, in 337 AD. And then it was only used for the vilest of criminals. A Roman citizen could never be crucified under the Roman law. It was a very long and, as I said, slow death, and uh, Jesus unexpectedly died in a quick three hours. So the manner of crucifixion uh, is what made it so painful. Uh, the, the victim's arms would be stretched out as a crossbeam, as you know, and they would either be tied or nailed, depending on what was available. If it was nailed, uh, unlike uh, common thought, the nails were driven through the, the wrist bone and through the ankle bones, or uh, otherwise the weight of the victim, would, if it had been through the palms, would have tore right through the flesh. Usually there was a seat called a saddle upon the cross in which the victim was able to lay his weight to some degree in order not to cause the uh, nails to rip. So the cross was then lifted up and dropped into a socket or a place that would hold the cross. Uh, 
This was a common experience of many criminals in Rome. It was not limited to these three, but thousands of people were crucified. It was a horrible death, a long death, and a painful death. And uh, normally the condemned would hang on the cross for much longer than the three hours Jesus did, up to a week, believe it or not. Underneath the blazing hot sun of Israel, many victims simply died from a lack of food and water. So the Romans devised a plan to speed that up if they wanted the victims to die quicker. They would come along and break their legs, and that would cause the chest to sink, and they would not be able to breathe, and you would actually... Uh, suffocate to death. And you know that according to the other gospel writers, they did that to the two criminals on the right and the left of Jesus, but they did not need to do it to him because he had already expired. So it's quite ironic that Jesus died with two criminals, one on his left and the other on his right, if you think about it. These were the honored positions (laughs) that the disciples had argued and fought over endlessly, remember? The, desires, the disciples desired to be in those places of honor. And John and James' mother came to Jesus and asked if they could sit on Jesus' right or left. But here was their opportunity. Instead of choosing to take this opportunity to suffer a death with the Lord as a criminal and a lawbreaker, they passed on it. Instead, two criminals received these chosen places of dying with Jesus on his left and his right. How ironic is that a twist for you? So, as his life was fleeting, as he's dying from the crucifixion, from the beating, from the loss of blood, Jesus looks to his heaven, as we see in verse 34, and he says to his Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus asks his Father to forgive those who persecute him. The Greek word that's used here for Jesus is asking, or uh, he's saying, the word there is elegon, and it's found in the Greek imperfect tense, which you really don't need to know, but what that tells us is that he keeps on asking. This is not a one-time saying by Jesus, but he keeps asking, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. Now, in our humanity, if somebody crucified us, I don't think we'd be asking for forgiveness, but asking for vengeance for the evil that was being done to us. We've just seen the attitudes of Americans changed within the past three months by the evils done by ISIS in beheading two reporters over in Syria. And all of a sudden, the uh, attitudes of Americans shifted. And so did the policy of our country. Because we, in our humanness, seek revenge against those that do great evil. But here in this verse, we find Jesus asking for forgiveness for those who were crucifying him. Now something that is missing from this verse, that's not stated, is that one of the requirements of the Romans when crucifixions took place was that the victim, the condemned, would have to say a mea culpa. He would have to acknowledge his guilt. They were forced to say these words, May my death atone for my sins. But the Savior, our Lord, does not do that. What does the Lord Jesus confess? Not his own sins. He confesses the sins of those who have falsely condemned him, convicted him, and now crucified him. Another ironic twist, do you not think? The Lord asks and offers forgiveness to his killers even though they probably didn't even want it. 
Jesus prays for them even though they are ignorant of their very crimes, according to this text. We read of this ignorance of all sinners in the New Testament in several locations. Stephen, as he is about to be stoned by his Jewish brethren in the city of Jerusalem, not just uh, several months down the road, he says this, Brothers, I know that you have acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. His point is clear. The Jewish people were culpable for their actions, though it was done in ignorance. Later on in the same book, the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 27, Paul will proclaim this same thing about his persecutors when he says to the Roman council, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, so the people and the Jewish rulers, recognized neither him, that is Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets which predicted, and that are read every Sabbath day, fulfilled by condemning him. All of the folks in Israel, in Jerusalem, but especially the leadership, didn't heed what the prophets had written, says Paul. They did it in ignorance. Now, just a little bit further in the same book of Acts, Paul has traveled to the city of Athens, and he's sharing with the intelligentsia that is found there about an unknown God. Maybe you'll recall that text on the Acropolis. And he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should change their minds. And if that's not enough to underscore this point, that our sin is done in ignorance, Paul himself says he was guilty of this. He writes to Timothy, saying in one of his epistles, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorant unbelief. Jesus offers this prayer for his persecutors who have acted in complete ignorance and unbelief. And by doing so, I believe he fulfills another prophecy, that which is found in Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says, He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions, transgressors. So let me ask you, when you are abused, when you are wronged in this world, do you pray for those who have perpetrated this evil against you? Or do you seek vengeance? Jesus prayed for his persecutors. He asked the Father to forgive them because of their ignorance. Should we not do likewise? It's not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. Truth is, throughout my lifetime, I've seen people who wanted to blame Jews for Jesus' death. The Roman Catholic Church was well known for that. Others thought that Pilate was alone accountable. The truth is, neither the Jewish accusers nor his Roman executor were fully cognizant of the gravity of their actions. The Jews thought they were protecting their religious establishment against an upstart newcomer who pulled the crowds away from them and demanded that they look at their he demanded that they look at their motivation. The Romans and the person of Pilate simply wanted to protect the political system of the day and the territory which they ruled over. But when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom was at hand, that was it. So both acted defensively, the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, by putting their own self-interests above the call for justice. And they executed an innocent man. 
They were not even fully cognizant of their actions. They probably were fully cognizant that they were executing the Son of God who had come to save them for their sins. The Lord Jesus, knowing this, shows the grace of God by praying for them that God would forgive them. Human justice cries out for vengeance, but the grace of God calls out for forgiveness. The verse continues. The Roman soldiers who had just nailed him to the cross and put it upright cast lots and divided up his garments among themselves. The clothes of the crucified one was the perks of the soldiers. They drew, they had drawn the short straw that day for crucifixion duty, and so one of the things that they got was the clothes of every Jewish man who was, who was executed. And these Jewish men usually had five articles of clothing with them. There was an inner tunic, an outer robe, the belt, sandals, and a turban or some kind of a headband. It was therefore customary for the Roman soldiers to divide these up. And since there were four Roman soldiers, they would divide up, one getting the headgear, one getting the sandals, one getting the belt, and the other getting the inner garment. That left the most important item of all, the outer coat, the outer garment. And according to John's Gospel, uh, it was one piece of material which was unusual. It was not sewn material together. So it was very expensive material and sought after. So instead of ripping it into four sections, they decided to have a lottery. They tossed dice, if you will, and the winner got the t- full tunic in one piece. That fulfilled prophecy as well, found in Psalm 22 and verse 18, which says, They will divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These prophecies written in Isaiah and in Psalm were 1,500 years before it actually took place in Jerusalem. There was no way that those things could be manipulated by its authors. So, this is the fulfillment of what God said would happen, found in Isaiah and in Psalms and other places. We see that the soldiers gamble for his tunic, the people mock the Lord Jesus. The rulers mock him. He's offered wine, vinegar in just a moment in this text, just as the Psalms and Isaiah predict. This tells us that we can trust Holy Word because it's accurate. It fulfills prophecy because God is the author of it. So one of the points that Luke is making in this gospel as he writes to the people of of uh, the Roman Empire is that prophecies are being fulfilled or were being fulfilled in Christ. We see this again in Jesus' dying between two criminals and in all the other activities that took place. The fulfillment is not the creation of stories by a later early church, as many of the critics of the Bible claim. Rather, this is the early church discovering the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in the death of Christ. Now let's see the responses of the people to the crucifixion of Jesus, beginning in verse 35. It says, And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They wagged their head. That's what that was. Here Luke contrasts the behavior of the regular folks, the just the normal nominal Jews with that of the religious elites. It clearly says 
that they were different. It distinguishes between the people who just watched silently what was going on, and then the rulers who scoffed and sneered at Jesus and made fun of him. The people are standing there taking it all in as Jesus is humiliated, beaten, cruelly, and killed. Luke uses the participle in the verse 35, which is, and even, in my New American Standard, but it could have been translated as a strong contrastive, but, but. He heightens the contrast by showing the difference between the people and the despicable behavior of the rulers as they assault Jesus, albeit as he's dying. It would be as though if someone today were strapped to a gurney in the gas chamber and then those who were putting him to death verbally assaulted him as they were putting in the ejection of the poison into his arm. But this too fulfills prophecy. For in Psalm 22 and verse 7 it says, All who sneer at me, they separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. So here is the cry of derision made to our Savior as he's dying. Save yourself. Come on, if you're really God, save yourself. This is the first of three such taunts we find in this text. Obviously, they valued, by this statement, temporal life over eternal life. You see, save yourself, save yourself, instead of die for us and saving us. So despite Jesus' asking for forgiveness for them, they continue to taunt him. They continue to make fun of him. But really, if you think about it, this is a backhanded compliment to our Lord because he indeed was saving them. I wonder if they knew that, if it would have changed their attitudes. I wonder if they really thought about Jesus and what he had done in his life, if they would have said this. Because we do know that he saved many during his lifetime, right? He saved the lepers from a painful death. He saved the blind, if you will, from a life of darkness. He saved the paralytics. He even raised some, like Lazarus, from the dead. If it wasn't pitiful enough that the religious leaders were supposed to show compassion and mercy to those who suffered, they mocked Jesus as he is in the worst condition that any human being could find themselves. Now we read in verse 36 that the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him Sour wine. This is wine vinegar, if you will. So you have the standing around of people watching Jesus die like a show. Then you have the rulers around the cross making fun of him. And in the inner, right below the cross, are the soldiers who, mimicking the religious elders, begin to mock Jesus. And then they try to force a sponge full of wine vinegar into the mouth of Jesus. But the other Gospels tell us that he refused it. The drink was too much like a grog, maybe, that British seamen uh, would use to inebriate themselves. This was not an act of kindness. Some think of it that way. But it was not an act of kindness to give a pain-dulling drink to a dying man. Rather, they meant it to cover up his pain so that he could keep on being mocked and keep on experiencing the pain that he was going through. Remember, he could live up to five days or seven days on the cross. So their thought was to prolong the misery because they were, in my opinion, sociopaths. And they enjoyed watching others 
hurt. They were saying to Jesus in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself, Jesus. This is the second taunt of Jesus to save himself. I think Luke's making a point here. I think he's pointing out the irony of the one who is saving the world will not sink to the point of saving himself from a cruel and a wicked punishment. His purpose wasn't to save self, but to die substitutionarily for others. Now in verse 38, we read that Pilate's inscription is placed over his cross, the one that was carried before him as he made his way through the city. And it was meant to mock him and, more importantly, to mock the religious leaders who had called for his death. We see in verse 38, now there was also an inscription above him. Some texts might say superscription, same thing. This is the king of the Jews. This is called a charge board. This is what he was being executed for. Uh, when someone is executed in the United States before he dies, the charge for his death is always read to him beforehand. So the Romans had in mind when putting this placard, this charge board above his head, was to warn others not to commit the same crime that this man did Otherwise, they would end up in the same place as he. It is nailed above his head. We read from the other Gospels, we learn from the other Gospels, that the the charge was actually written in three separate languages. It was written three times, once in Greek, once in Latin, and once in Hebrew. These three languages were very important. Greek was the universal speaking language of the day. Latin was the official language official language of the Roman Empire, and Hebrew was the language of the religious Jews. Another way to understand this is that Greek was the language of the intelligentsia, of education, of art, of literature, and of the sciences. Latin was the language of law and order, of the military, and of government. And Hebrew was the language of religion. These three complement what will take place later in the millennial kingdom when Jesus sets it up following his return to this earth. He will be the political leader. He will be the educational ruler. He will be the spiritual ruler of this world. So the scripture was not only accurate, but it was prophetic in some ways. Now Luke doesn't share with us in this text the controversy that surrounded the inscription. For the religious leaders came to uh, Pilate and demanded that it be taken down or at least changed. You see, they went ballistic when they saw what it said. They asked Pilate to change it to say this. He said, he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. He would not change his choice of words. Instead, it said, what I, instead he said, what I have written, I have written. I believe that Pilate did this in order to mock the religious leaders, to make fun of them. He showed them what he really thought of their religion and of their demands for Jesus' execution. He did this for political reasons. But on the other hand, the placard written by Pilate also acknowledged that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the king of the Jews. And now both Pilate and the Sanhedrin, who hated one another, who had forced him, the Sanhedrin, who had forced him to execute Jesus, 
had their answer from Pilate. This was the king of the Jews. He might meant it as mocking, but in reality, it underscored the truth of Jesus' person. Every person who walked by, who had come from around the world to enjoy the festival of the Passover, now read the inscription that this was their king, the king of the Jews. There's a Christological emphasis that we find in this text that cannot be missed. That Jesus is the Christ. It's underscored in these five verses by the names that, are call, that he is called. He's called the Christ of God, if you look in your text. He is called the Chosen One, the King of the Jews twice, and the Christ once. All three statements come from his enemies. All three were intended to mock him, but nevertheless, they affirm who he is, his person. Everything that Jesus taught about himself is summed up in these statements. He is the Christ. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Chosen One. And these statements come right out of the mouths of his oppressors, his accusers. They affirm who he is. The next affirmation of Jesus' deity comes from one of the very criminals who's hanging with him. We see in verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanging there with Jesus, he hurled abuse at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. Here's the same taunt made to Jesus. Save yourself, and he adds the words, and us. If you're really God, can't you get us down from this cross? Save us. Save yourself. You see, here we find a soteriological emphasis that Jesus is the one who is able to save to the uttermost. He is the Savior. He came into this world to seek and to save the lost. What we find here in this text is an interesting chiastic structure. Now, I know that's going to be a little bit much for some of us to get that word chiastic, but it's really simple. Uh, he mentions here four times in these five verses who he is as the Savior. In verse 35, it's said twice in verse 37, and then verse 39. These titles appear in, as a form of mockery by their oppressors, but Luke has arranged it structurally to make one point. So if you look with me, at verse 35, you see A is Christ. You can put that up. B is king of the Jews in verse 37. Then he repeats that in verse 38, king of the Jews. And then he goes back to Christ in verse 39. So it's as though he's pointing to who Christ is. He is who they say he is, the king of the Jews. This is called a literary device, a chiastic structure. Now, ordinary folks will miss this, but scholars see this clearly. And... Though they mocked him, they literally pointed to who he was. Even those crucified with him mocked him. But then one had a change of heart. Look with me at verse 40. Look at the changes from the crucifixion. But the other answered and rebuked him, that's the other criminal, saying, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. This is the rebuke of one criminal of the other. Both who, we learned from the other Gospels, had mocked Jesus at first, crying out, save yourself and save us. 
But one has a change of heart, a change of mind, if you will. An aha moment is what I like to call it. He realizes as he is watching this all take place before his very eyes, as he's hanging there on the cross, that this is the Christ. So he rebukes the other criminal, saying, We're the guilty ones, man. Don't you get this? We're the ones who committed the crime. This guy hasn't done anything. We suffer a sentence that we deserve. Don't you fear God? As you probably know, Psalm 111, verse 1 says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Don't you fear God? Don't you get it, man? This is the Christ. Wake up. And he goes on and he says to his fellow thief in verse 41, Indeed, we suffer justly. We're getting what we deserved. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He makes it very clear, crystal clear, to his partner in crime that they were suffering the due penalty of the deeds they had done in the body. Not only were they suffering justly, but they were getting justice. They were receiving what they deserved. Our dear sister, Sue Butler, yep, worked for the Washington State penal system for over 30 years. I would venture to bet that she never met or heard a criminal who admitted to his own guilt. They're all innocent. I didn't do it. Here this man says he's suffering justly. But Jesus is innocent. Now, I'm quite sure that there are innocent men and women incarcerated wrongly. But isn't it refreshing to hear an admission of guilt by someone who deserves it and receives their punishment? But when you bump up against Jesus, even if you're hanging on a cross, you are forced to make a choice about him and about yourself. What this man has seen and has experienced in his bumping up against Jesus makes him think deeply about his life. He'd heard Pilate's declaration thrice that Christ was innocent of any wrongdoing. He'd heard about Herod's refusal to indict the Lord. He'd listened to the mocking of Jesus, the calling of him the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And suddenly he has a heart, a change of heart and mind. A change of heart and mind about the Lord. He realized that he is a guilty sinner and that what he has done is wrong. All the evidence is before him. All the testimony about Christ is there. He concludes that Jesus is who he he said he was. And this change of mind leads to this request we find in verse 42. He says, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I find it interesting that he's often referred to as the penitent thief. But if you read this, he actually never asks for forgiveness. Oh, yes, he acknowledges his wrongdoing, but that's different than asking for forgiveness. I also find it interesting that this man never cries over his past sinful choices. He never says, I wish I'd never done these evil things. He never says, I wish I could make those choices over again. He doesn't recite each and every sin that he committed to Jesus. He doesn't seek to give restitution to those whom he has harmed. 
He doesn't make wild promises to God about his future behavior. He didn't promise complete obedience to Jesus or follow his lordship. He simply asked Jesus to remember him. What does that mean? Remember me. He gets very specific. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So is he asking the Lord Jesus to remember when he returns as the king at some future date? Is he referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom? I really doubt that. So then is he asking Jesus to recall him at just some unknown date in the future? I don't know. But I do know this. The Lord Jesus is God and he never forgets anything. So this means more than what appears on the surface. He is, in my mind, referring to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah that he had learned about in his youth when he went to synagogue. So when he uses this term, remember, he's using it in a Hebrew qualitative way as they would use remember. Mininoskiamia, which is the word for remember in Hebrew, can mean to remember ordinary moral teaching or a deep theological lesson. We often tell our children that they need to remember their lessons, their multiplication tables, their English grammar, or as Mrs. Bruns does, she tells the children to remember their Bible lessons from Sunday school. Right, Mrs. Bruns? Mm -hmm. The idea of remembered is promoted over and over and over again in the scriptures. Israel was told by God to remember his loving acts of forgiveness on their behalf. This was illustrated in all the feasts. They were all tools of remembrance. God provided illustrations so that they could remember what he had done for them. They were to set up stone pillars of remembrance to remember what God did. Jesus is asked by the thief to remember him. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Eden? He asked the Lord to remember him, to keep him from the cross. So I believe this man is expressing his faith in Christ as the promised Messiah who all Jews knew would come and establish his kingdom. It's his desire at the moment of his death to share in that kingdom with Jesus. So let me return to where I began this morning in my opening illustration. What's the difference between these two criminals, these two men? Both were arrested for the same crime. Both men were tried, condemned, and were crucified for the same offense. What's the difference between them? Well, there wasn't really any differences. Both, the, both of them were guilty thieves who deserved to die, but one has a change of mind. One believed that Jesus was who he said he was, and the other did not. His request for Jesus to remember him shows his belief and trust in the promises of the Old Testament that God would send a Redeemer in the form of the Messiah, that Jesus was the chosen one of God, just as the inscription above his head proclaimed. Was this man saved in the way in which we talk about salvation today in this dispensation of grace? I would answer that yes and no. As you know, people today are saved by looking back to the substitutionary death of Christ on Calvary and his resurrection from the tomb. Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave to give believers new life. But that historical event had not yet taken place. 
This was before the completion of the gospel of grace. Jesus had not yet risen from the dead. So these two men are still under the Mosaic law, under the Mosaic system that Jesus came to fulfill and abolish. The Lord offered himself as the promised Messiah to the Jewish people for the purpose of doing away with that system. Because they rejected him, he had to die on the cross between two two thieves. But one trusted him and one did not. That trust was as the Old Testament promised Jewish Messiah. How do I know that? Well, let's look at verse 43, our last verse. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. To underscore the truth of his words, Jesus uses the word Truly, or verily, or amen, depending on your English translation. The Hebrew word for this is amam, and it means I believe or I agree with this statement. It affirms that the words spoken are true, always true. Jesus was saying to this man, you can take this statement to the bank. But I'd like you to notice the emphasis that's placed here on the word today. The word is translated 22 times in the New Testament as this day, and 18 times as Today, not today, but today. So Jesus literally says to him, On this day you will be with me. That's where it gets sticky, if you will. If this man is going to die this day, like Jesus, how can it be that he be in paradise on this day? That's not possible. Jesus lies in his grave for three days. So it can't be this day. And most of us are aware from teaching in the New Testament that Jesus actually walked the earth for another 40 days. In the next chapter, Jesus has a long conversation with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So how in the world could the thief and Jesus be in paradise if we equate paradise with heaven? See, there is the problem. When you listen to most commentators or public speakers or pastors, that's what they tell you. That today, Jesus and the thief were in heaven with God. That's not possible according to the New Testament. It sounds good. Maybe you're out there thinking, but pastor, that's what I've heard in all the sermons I've ever heard and read. I read that the thief went to heaven with Jesus on that day. It's not true. They're all wrong. Obviously, what Jesus is saying to this man who's had a change of heart and mind about him, is that his reward will be with him to be in paradise. The question is, how and where is this fulfilled? What is meant by paradise? Is paradise equal to heaven? Some, most, will say that it certainly is. You've been taught that this for the past umpteen years through various sermons, I'm sure. And if at the end of my sermon you leave here and you still believe that, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. You can believe whatever you want. Do you remember when Jesus taught the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? They were both in Hades. Both men, the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous were both in Hades. The rich man was in one part of Hades and Lazarus was in the other, called Abraham's bosom, Hades was made up of two parts, two compartments, some call it. Both of these men lifted up their eyes to heaven where they could see Father Abraham located. And Lazarus cried out to him. 
Here's the point. Before the resurrection of Jesus, before the resurrection of Jesus, before the resurrection of Jesus, all people, righteous and unrighteous, went to Hades, which had two compartments. One place was for the righteous, and the other place was for the unrighteous. The place of the righteous was called Abraham's bosom, and it was also called paradise. Now, the other ones who had not trusted in God and were unrighteous went to the other compartment. The word paradise, get this now, originates in the Persian language and it refers to a walled garden. When a Persian king wanted to give one of his subjects a special reward, he would walk with him in the king's garden and they would talk with one another. The chosen individual had personal interaction with the king. The word was brought over into the biblical context and used by the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 8 and 13, the word that is translated as Garden of Eden is the same word. So, put on your thinking caps and think. Who was in the Garden of Eden? Who lived in the Garden of Eden? Two righteous people. They lived in paradise, not God. God came and visited and walked in the garden. But it was Adam and Eve, the righteous people, who dwelled there. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in paradise? They were kicked out of paradise. The unrighteous, too, were forced to leave. The term paradise is used consistently in the Old Testament and the New Testament to speak of a park or a garden, or a park with trees. It's used that way in Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Nehemiah. In the New Testament, Paul uses this term, and this is very important again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. While John employs it in the book of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7, Paul writes the Corinthians saying this, I know a man who, 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I don't know. He's referring to himself, modestly. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. Now, two verses later, he continues this thought, saying, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexplicable words which a man is not permitted to think. So we're thinking here because of Paul's illustration, well, that sounds like he's going to heaven. So is paradise heaven? That's what it sounds like. Now, just hold on. In the book of Revelation, John writes, He who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to him to eat of the garden of the tree, which is in the paradise of God. He's talking about the new earth where the paradise of God is now located, the recreation of the garden of Eden. And who is there? The righteous. So it's very consistent. Paradise on earth or in heaven or in the new earth The place is not what's consistent. That changes. What's consistent about the meaning of paradise is it's always inhabited by the righteous believers. The Garden of Eden, two righteous believers. Heaven populated with righteous believers that are dead, waiting the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ and their return to earth. The new earth, the place where all believers come to dwell in the New reality of eternity. So the place is different, but the same people are always there. The righteous believers. The Jewish rabbis use this term, paradise, as the abode of the righteous. Sheol was the place 
that they called the place of the unbelieving dead. Now, you've heard other terms bantered about in other texts for paradise, like Gehenna, hell, and other, other terms that are used. But these terms are always consistent of the righteous place, the, the, the place of the righteous or the place of the unrighteous dead. So here's the point. Jesus and the thief on the cross proceeded directly from their deaths to the place of Abraham's bosom or paradise where they remained for three days. And since paradise has always been described as the place of the redeemed, it fits together that they could go there today. Why is this criminal? This, some say murderer, some say thief. Why is he welcomed into the presence of God? That's the important question about this. Why is he welcomed into the presence of the righteous with Christ? Didn't he deserve eternal damnation? No. He placed his faith and trust in the Messiah. He was saved by the same grace that you and I are saved by today. But his rescue was personal. It was guaranteed by the Lord Jesus himself. This man's only hope for the future was based on receiving a new status and a new forgiveness afforded by Christ on that very day. I'd like to close with a story by the great late pastor of the Church of the Open Door in L.A., J. Vernon McGee. He tells of a time of playing tennis with a friend of his who was a committed liberal theologian. Dr. McGee asked him, what would you tell the thief on the cross? Would you tell him to run errands of mercy? Open a food bank? Clothe the naked? Would you tell him to use his hands and feet for acts of kindness? The man looked at him, startled, and McGee then said, Well, come on, that's what you tell your people to do, isn't it? Yes, the liberal theologian said. But they can do those things. But what are you going to tell this poor thief? What could he possibly do, asked McGee. His hands and feet will not come down from that cross until they come down in death. What church could he possibly join? What ceremony could he possibly go through? The truth is, the Lord Jesus said to this man who had changed his mind about his person, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the grace of God that saves you, not your works. Never in the Old Testament, never in the New Testament was anyone saved by their works. It is by grace that God saves us, just as illustrated in the life of this thief who had a change of mind about himself and about Jesus. And he was in the presence of Christ that day with other righteous believers awaiting the resurrection that would take place three days later. We don't like this to be so, but the truth is each of us is just as culpable for our sins and the death of Christ as the Jewish leaders were, as Pilate was, and as the two criminals executed on his right and his left. But the truth is we're all, as I said in my Sunday school class this morning, worms, sinners, with nothing good about us. Paul acknowledges this much about himself. After living 40 years as the 
preeminent Messiah, uh, I'm sorry, missionary, as the preeminent pastor, as the writer of the majority of the New Testament, he confesses to his son in the faith, Timothy, not that he is more righteous than anyone else, that he deserves to be in heaven with Christ. What's his acknowledgement? I am the chief of all sinners. We are all saved by grace, not by our works. Just as a thief on the cross. I trust you're saved today. If not, do not put your faith in your works. Do not put your faith in the things that you do or might do or the changes you might make. Put your faith in Christ alone. Let us pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your love and mercy shown to us in the life of Christ that he would die this cruel, awful death for the wicked persons that we are. Thank you, Father. You save us not based on what we do, but on the work of Christ. May we never plead our cause based on something we have done. Our deeds in the body will only get us punishment. May we plead the blood and the work of Christ, our Savior.